As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me and your copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Jeremiah. That's Jeremiah and chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, and we'll pick up our reading there at verse 18. And beloved, once more hear the word of our God. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely... Have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps, set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. As far the reading of God's holy word, may he richly bless us. Well, friend, if you were with us in the midweek, took up verses 18 and 19, where we find Ephraim turning to God. You remember, beloved, as you come to the prophecy of Jeremiah, that that what we read of here is certainly not going to take place in Jeremiah's lifetime. And in a very real sense, the fullness of what we have here won't take place in the exile either. The fullness that we expect here is what's given to us in Romans 11, and that's something that we anticipate. When our elder sister, the church of Israel, is once again brought back to the Lord by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this prophecy ultimately looks to. But as we look at this prophecy, you'll notice that here the prophet presents to us as God's mouthpiece, Ephraim, that that great tribe of the ten northern tribes that often stands to represent all of those tribes. Ephraim comes before us and he comes personified as a single individual. And in verses 18 and 19, he comes to us as one who turns to God. And he comes with confession on his lips, a confession of his sin as well as a confession of faith. What Ephraim does in verses 18 and 19 is he goes to the God whom he had spurned for centuries. He goes to the God whom he had habitually, habitually turned away from despite the calls of the prophets who rose up early and urged them to repentance. He turns back to the God who had been so gracious and so kind and so patient. And he comes saying that he was as a beast before the Lord. He comes reflecting. He comes, as it were, taking stock of his past life. And he says that there all he finds is unprofitableness, 
barrenness, stubbornness, beastliness. And that's not all. As Ephraim comes to us in these two verses, he comes also with an admission. Not only of sin, but also of impotence. Ephraim says that he is dependent upon divine grace to be turned. In other words, Ephraim in our text comes to us as one who is so thoroughly acquainted with his own nature, not just his own, his own sins, but that root of iniquity that's within him. And he comes with the acknowledgement that unless divine grace interrupts, the dominion of sin will not be broken. He comes, then a man utterly at the mercy of Almighty God. Confessing his sin. That is Ephraim turning to God. Our text this evening shows us, if you like, God turning to Ephraim. In a sense, of course, in verses 18 and 19, you see that. You see God turning to Ephraim. But in the 20th verse, especially, our focus is on God turning to Ephraim once more in mercy. We see that in the beginning of verse 20 in those two questions. Is Ephraim my dear son? My bowels are troubled for him. And, and, and there you have God's reply, but that's accompanied with assurances of mercy. Therefore, says the Lord, I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Ephraim, Ephraim is met with the mercy of God. He comes confessing his sin, his utter unworthiness, and his own native inability. And this is how the Lord receives him, with abundance of mercy, assurances of pardon. Now, friend, as the Lord Lord conveys this to us, he does so really in three ways. He does so by, by looking, first of all, at the present. I want you to notice that. He says, is Ephraim. And then he says, my bowels are troubled for him. In other words, there's a present aspect to verse 20. There's also a past element as well. He says, ever since I spake against him, I remember him still. And there the Lord recalls his past dealings with Ephraim as well. And of course, the text ends with something of the future. I will surely have mercy upon him. Now, friend, as we take stock of this 20th verse overall, you and I are taught very simply that Ephraim is well-received. He's not cast out when he turns to the Lord. That's obvious. But there's something else in this 20th verse that we can't miss either. Here you and I encounter the ground, the reason, as it were, for Ephraim's positive reception. Why Ephraim was so well received by God. And the answer, the answer to all of this is found in those two questions at the start. Because Ephraim was precious to the Lord. That is the ground, beloved, and the root of Ephraim's favorable reception. Now, as we think of those three elements that are in this text, this idea that that here the Lord is recalling present, past, and future dealings, we find that all then of God's dealings with Ephraim are predicated on this idea. That to God, Ephraim was precious. Now, friend, if we step back from the text just for a moment, 
we remember the context that, that Jeremiah was God's mouthpiece to Judah. And that he was God's mouthpiece to Judah after the northern tribes had already been destroyed, exiled, already sent away. We could ask a basic question. And that is, well, what, what use was a text like ours this evening to such a context? Why, why was this given to Judah, especially after, again, this self-same prophet has said, even after Josiah's reformation, it was too little, too late. Judah, too, would go into exile. What benefit does this text give to the Judahite who heard it first? Friend, I'll submit to you that the answer to that is also the answer for how you and I are to apply this text. Even though Judah would go into exile, this was supposed to be a clarion call for the Judahite to do as Ephraim here is promised to do in the future. This text is given as, in other words, to be an incentive to repent. Here, the the, the impenitent Jew is reminded that those who truly turn back to the Lord are favorably received. And friend, that's not only true for the Jew as well as it's true for all. All of God's people who are brought to repentance. This is their experience. This is their blessing. And keeping that before us is our theme. And keeping before us the idea that this 20th verse shows us that God's dealings with Ephraim, past, present, and future, are grounded on this idea that that Ephraim was precious to the Lord then, friend, you and I find something that's universally true to all of God's people. All God's dealings with his children are from free love. It will take time for us to demonstrate that this evening, but that is the theme we'll take up. This text holds forth that all God's dealings with his children are from free love. And I want us to consider that briefly, friend, under three headings. I want us to consider, first of all, the cause. The cause of this love It's continuity. And finally, it's compass. So take, first of all, what you have in that first question. Is Ephraim my dear son? Now, literally translated, uh, you could render it. Ephraim is Ephraim my very precious son. The second question is similar. Is he a pleasant child? Literally, is he a child in whom I delight? Upon whom I've set my favor. That's the idea. And friend, as you look at this text, it's important for us to leave the text stand as it does. You see, in these questions, the Lord is not asking, will Ephraim become very precious to me? Neither is he saying, has Ephraim become an object of my delight. There is a real timelessness to these questions that I think we could quickly overlook. The idea that the Lord is communicating to us here is that Ephraim was precious to him, and I'll note this, it's in our text, even when the Lord spake against him. Note what he says. Even when I spake against him, I remember him still. How did the Lord remember him? The sense is he regarded him 
still as one who is an object of his love. One whom the Lord had set upon his favor. And friend, I want you to notice too, if the Lord remembered him so even when Ephraim had merited God's chastisement through his sin, that even when God rose up his prophets justly to to threaten them with a judgment they so justly deserved, then the cause of this delight, that is the cause of Ephraim's favor with God, cannot lie with Ephraim. It can't. There's no way of reading the 20th verse and saying here that Ephraim has merited what he receives. No, the cause is this. It is the free love of God. Ephraim is a recipient of God's free favor. And beloved, that is the ground. That is the ground of the mercies that are described for us in this text. And that's not true only of Ephraim, of course. Beloved, that's true of every penitent. Everyone like Ephraim who turns to the Lord. God's love for his own is from free grace alone. Theologically, we think of the love of God in three ways. We, we think of the love of God as an act of benevolence, as acts in, in beneficence, and also acts of complacency. And, and all three have their place in our text. When we think of God's love of benevolence, first of all, you and I, we are thinking of God's favorable disposition toward his people from eternity. That is, his love for the elect from everlasting. It's described for us, of course, in Jeremiah 31 itself. In the third verse, the Lord says to his people, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Before ever Ephraim, before ever God's people could merit anything, even though they could never, God says he loved them. Verse 4 of our text in Isaiah 43 reads, Since thou wast precious in my sight, the mercies that Israel receives is because God had freely set upon them his love and counted them precious. That's the idea. Friend, it's perfectly an act of free grace, this love of benevolence. And all of God's people are recipients of it. Ephesians 1.5 God predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. What is the cause from eternity why God loved his own? His own good pleasure. Nothing in them. It was an act of benevolence. The decree was an absolutely benevolent decree that got their election. When we think, secondly, of God's love of beneficence, we think of those works of love and of mercy in time. And so, friend, you see that also in our text. Jeremiah 31, again, he says, Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That's 31.3. And so you see the connection between the two. God loves his people from everlasting, and so in time that love is manifest through God's work of grace. Therefore, says God, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And of course, in Romans 5, this is applied to all of God's people. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
in time, the clearest display of divine love for his people was manifest in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, the love of complacency. Friend, when we think of this, you and I are to remember that, that God delights in his people. He delights in his people as he sees his own work of grace. And so the scriptures, of course, urge us to remember that there are works that are well-pleasing to the Lord. Children in Ephesians 6 are reminded that that obedience to their parents is something that the Lord is well-pleased with. And, And how are we to understand that? Have they merited this love of God, this love of complacency through their obedience? And the answer is no. Friend Paul does not contradict himself. Every aspect of salvation, including sanctification, leads the believer always and only to glory in the Lord. They have nothing in themselves to boast in. So what is this love of complacency? Well, friend, just as it was with the love of benevolence and beneficence, it was a love of free grace. But in complacency, it takes this, it takes this form. That God loves the grace that he sees at work in his people. I think Augustine put it so very well when he said, when we think of this category of divine love, when we think of this element of God's people being precious to him, you and I are to remember that here God simply rewards his grace with grace. Friend, all of these things that we've walked through, in short order, mind you, All of these things underscore the reality that the rise, the root, the cause of God's love, the favor which Ephraim has in God's sight is only a free act of grace. That is the cause. It is the Lord's free love that is here on display. Now if that's the cause, we need to come next to the second aspect of our text. And that is the continuity of this love. Now, friend, as you look at this text, you'll notice he says here, since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Translated literally, the meaning is, while I estranged myself from him, I loved him still. While I estranged myself from him, I loved him still. One older commentator put it to us this way. We should read the text and come away with this thought. If the Lord, whenever he is constrained to punish Ephraim, still thinks of him, then Ephraim must be a dear son to him indeed. Friend, the idea here is that despite Ephraim's great provocations, despite the warnings and the threatenings that God had sent to him, The point of the text is, in this 20th verse, that God loved him still. And there's actually something even more staggering. As we leave the text as it stands, not only is the sense that the Lord loved Ephraim as he chastised him, the sense is that it is because the Lord loved him that he chastised him. The chastisements that Ephraim so callously responded to, under which he was so insensible, were nevertheless on the part of God sent, because in God's sight Ephraim was precious. 
And friend, for all of God's people, this text holds forth that God's love for his own is unchanging. Notwithstanding Ephraim's provocations, notwithstanding all the ways in which his sins were aggravated, God still bore to Ephraim this favor. Friend, here you and I are supposed to see electing love. That really is what's on display here. It's here in spite of the rods and the rebukes that were sent. Um, Whenever the Lord in this text says that he spoke against Ephraim, you, you and I should have in view here not just the work of the prophets, but even providences. You remember in, in, in Micah 6, the Lord says, Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it. Providences speak. Providences are chastisements, as it were, with voice. And so, friend, you and I are to see here that electing love was unchanged, even as God sent forth those warnings, those chastisements. But perhaps more staggeringly in this verse, you and I are reminded that God God regarded Ephraim precious in his sight despite the cause of those chastisements, namely Ephraim's sin. This is a staggering point, beloved, and I hope I, I hope that we go away a changed people because of this. The text is telling us that before Ephraim repented, God loved him still. Before Ephraim turned in verses 18 and 19, God loved him and counted him precious. In fact, friend, this is the way in which you and I are supposed to understand the cause for Ephraim's turning. Ephraim turned only to the Lord because the Lord loved him. As we think of this text, friend, that reminds us then that all of God's dealings, everything that God employed to draw him to repentance, every providence that would befall Ephraim, came to Ephraim as God regarded him an object of favor, as one precious in his sight. And friend, I want you to notice that 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 idea is clearly communicated to us time and again in the scriptures. Let me just give you one. Galatians 1 is a wonderful example of this. And, And it's a wonderful example of taking what you have in this text and applying it to every individual believer. Note what the apostle says. He says, I profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. Note what the apostle says. He looks at his life and he says, everything was so ordered, why and how? Because the good pleasure of God and an act of free grace had chosen him to be one called by his grace. Friend, this is the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 71. By thee have I been holden up from the womb. Thou art he that took me out of my mother's bowels. And then that is the same thing that he pleads throughout that psalm. That then all of God's dealings with him are from this free 
this free grace. Beloved, you and I are supposed to leave a text like this marveling at free grace all the more. He loved me before I loved him. When I hated him, when I despised him, as the apostle says, when I wasted the church of God, he loved Our third point in this text is the compass of this love. The scriptures read, my bowels are troubled for him. It's anthropopathic language where God is accommodating his prophetic message to our own earthly experience, our human experience. And the idea of bowels being troubled really in the scriptures refer back to the idea of one's deepest and most existential feeling. That's how the Lord describes for us his affection for Ephraim. My friend, of course, you and I know, as the confession rightly teaches, that God is without either parts nor passions. So how do we understand this language? How do we understand this idea that's being communicated to us? Because it is meaningful. Uh, You and I are not to ignore what you and I find here. It is communicating to us truth. So what is it communicating to us? I want to read to you a quote, I know I've read it to you before, from one of our older divines, Thomas Morton. He writes this, he says, If you mean by affections, that is, sudden, vehement perturbations, such as we are usually, such as we see usually in men, rising and, and ceasing as occasions and objects are offered, then there are certainly no affections in God. For there is nothing in him at any time that is not always in him and that hath not been in him from all eternity. But if we mean by affections, that is constant, continual, yea, eternal acts, motions, and and inclinations, for even these two latter terms, although improper, must be used for want of better, of his will, not stirred up on a sudden like a tempest, by this or that particular object, but settled and permanent, arising of the diverse nature of things and agreeable thereunto, in this sense we may truly say that there are affections in God. For he doth truly love and embrace good, and likewise hate and abhor evil whatsoever. Friend, what Morton there is saying to us is very pointed. But this anthropopathic language is not to be considered less than what you find in human affection, but more in the sense that this is unchangeable. This is not like men. This is not that kind of passion or that kind of affection that you find among men. Here you have an inclination. Again, even a term that itself is fraught with difficulty in theology. But but you have here God's settled disposition toward his own. And the force of this, beloved, is that it is powerful. The force of this language is that it should leave us stunned. What the Lord is saying here is that the love that he bears toward Ephraim, it is deep, truly unfathomable. And friend, as we close this evening, I think perhaps the best way for us to do so is 
to ask, well, what really? What really is the measure of what we have before us tonight? The answer to that is straightforward. It's the answer that you and I already know. How was this unfathomable, deep, and eternal love for his people manifest? Of course it was in Christ. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I want you to notice the logic that the apostle employs there. As he looks at the Son of God, sees his inestimable worth, the reasoning goes thus. Could the Lord God have given any other Was any greater value possible than the infinite Son of God to be given? Could God give a greater? And friend, the answer to that is that as Christ is the image, the express image of the Father, as He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, the Apostle comes to the conclusion, no, no, Such is the love of God for his own, that even his own infinite son would be given to them. Beloved, when you and I contemplate the love of God, surely we should be mindful it is an unfathomable deep for his own. As we close, friend, there is a question here of examination. As I said to you before, this text is supposed to incite the Judaite to repentance. And so the question is, friend, do we find the kind of repentance in ourselves that we see in verses 18 and 19? You see, for the believer, friend, this this kind of repentance, it should be staggering. You know, we sin against a benevolent creator as men a creator who is good even to the beasts of the field. We also sin against a good Lord, who is Lord rational over, over all of his rational creatures, who is good to all. But friend, you who have been brought to repentance, you have sinned against a God who from eternity loved you, who while you hated him, he counted you precious still, such that you could not be lost. Surely that ought to work in us, friend, deep humiliation. Surely that should only show us more the heinousness of sin and the remarkable depth of divine love. Staggering, isn't it, how the Lord deals with David when David sins against him? You remember what Nathan the prophet says. The Lord speaking through him says, I have anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom and and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. 
Friend, meditate just for a moment. Meditate on how that exposes to us God's loving disposition to a man who for months was hard-hearted and would not repent. He comes simply saying, I would have given you more had you but clung to me. Friend, that should break our hearts when we contemplate sin. And this text is supposed to do that. It's supposed to remind us that when we sin, we sin as God's people, not only against his majesty, but against his love. There is comfort in this text, friend, of course there is. And it would be wrong for us to leave without it. This love that we find here in verse 20 is a love that is from free grace alone. But I want you to again look at the language that's employed. My bowels are troubled for him. It's anthropopathic language. There are no parts nor passions in God. But friend, I think our older divines were quite helpful in reminding us that even these anthropopathic terms, these were fulfilled quite literally in Christ. God, who is insusceptible to change in his divine nature, nevertheless in the incarnation of Christ, would have bowels of mercy as mediator. He would weep over a Jerusalem that rejected him. He would cry at the feast for souls to take hold of him. Beloved, you and I are supposed to see in Christ the embodiment of this text to them. This great and fathomable deep of love for his people. So friend, the call of this text is for you and I to mourn sin aright. If we are a people who have turned to the Lord, it is because he counted us precious in his sight from eternity, such that he gave his only begotten son. And friend, if all of that is so, all of that is so. Surely we have cause to lay low before him, even as we exalt his great love. May this lead us to mourn sin as we should, to forsake it more, and to praise the glorious grace that's revealed to us in Christ. Amen.